Well, have you noticed that in the news and the various outlets, there's a bit of a blame game going on of where this coronavirus started, how it came to be, whose fault that it is, as if any of that at this point in time truly matters. Here's one from the New Yorker, from bats to human lungs, the evolution of a coronavirus. Another one here, a senator says, China to blame for coronavirus because people eat bats. And you've heard a little bit about that. And so the blame is that if, if that wasn't the case, that people would follow what God says in his word about uh, diet restrictions and so forth, we wouldn't be in this mess. And, and there certainly very well may be some truth to all of that. I don't honestly know if that's where it started, but that's certainly one of the theories. Here's another headline from Business Insider. Both the new coronavirus and SARS outbreaks likely started in Chinese wet markets. Photos show what the markets look like. And maybe you've walked in places similar to that in other countries around the world and thought, my goodness, uh, how does this meat stay, you know, in a, in a suitable state for consumption and so on. I imagine we'd be a little bit appalled if we knew about all the meat industry in this own, in this country of our, our own, but that is for some what is to be blamed. This is from the BBC. Coronavirus pangolins, if I'm saying that right, found to carry related strains. So is this little creature to be blamed? I don't know. The Guardian is saying this, is factory farming to blame for coronavirus? Another one, the trail leading back to Wuhan's labs. Is this thing been created and put together in a lab somewhere, simply made to harm people, but it got a little out of control and here we are? Well, that theory is certainly floating around. This is a senator saying coronavirus spread because of Chinese Communist Party's ineptitude and deceptions. And you have some of those types of stories uh, going here and there. This is an opinion piece. Of course, CNN, this is, which is no friend of, of Donald Trump. Trump stumbles in first efforts to control virus response as fear spreads and markets fall. I mean, certainly this is all Donald Trump's fault. And then some were pointing to those spring breakers, especially those down in Florida, but other places. If I get corona, I get corona. Com- coronavirus pandemic doesn't slow spring breakers party. And so many seniors were pointing to these groups and these masses on the beach saying, they're not being respectful to what's happening. They don't care about us and so on and so forth. Another pointing finger at somebody else. Here's another one. Commander of confusion. Trump sows uncertainty and seeks to cast blames in coronavirus crisis. Again, somebody taking a shot. And there's plenty of this to go around. Pence seeks to blame CDC in China for any delay in U.S. coronavirus response. Not Trump's initial failure to face reality. And of course, this is CNN again. But my point is simply this. It's easy to pass blame, to point the finger, to try and pass the buck, if you will. Trump touts great success as U.S. becomes world's worst virus epicenter. Okay, you can say that, but what would it be had we not done anything You know, all of these things are in the realm of the what if and how do we truly know? But it seems to be one thing is is very easy for us to do. And that's the point, the finger at somebody else. Whose fault is it? Who do we need to bring to justice? And it seems like several people have targets on their backs, if you will. Have you ever had a target on your back? It's not a fun place to be. Have you ever been the scapegoat to somebody else's challenge and trial? 
Well, we feel the situation was mishandled, and rather than figure out the who and the what and all the details, we're just going to let you go. Or it's the he is the reason our marriage failed. They are the ones that should have seen this coming. She could have been more proactive. The teacher didn't handle things right. The parent is the real problem. The son was in my eyes. I mean, there's all numbers of things we can, we can blame. Well, I didn't get enough sleep last night. Nobody ever told me. I wasn't aware. And so we can blame and blame and blame. Sometimes we call it the blame game. Is this a fun game to enter into? Are there winners in the blame game? Blaming really is the fine art of making others responsible for all the difficult things that are happening to us. It's something our modern society, society seems to support as perfectly acceptable. Reality, TV shows, force feed us scenes of one character blaming another character. Newspapers are awash with stories about how all of society's problems are to be blamed on politicians and terrorists, and there's nothing that we can do. Ultimately, blaming means I don't have to be held accountable and allows one to still feel that they are in control, but really it's a way of unloading repressed pain and frustration, I'm told, in a way that protects one's ego. Yes, that's the blame game. However, when we blame everyone and everything else, We avoid personal growth and accountability for our actions. We become powerless to all the conditions around us that cause failure. We fail to become empathetic to the needs of others and instead become narcissistic. And heavy blamers sacrifice close and meaningful relationships. I mean, isn't that true? Somebody that's constantly blaming somebody else, anybody else, never taking credit for any wrong thing that's ever done, They can be hard to be around. Well, today we're continuing our series on Paul. And you may wonder, why Paul at a time like this? But I think today it fits, more or less, as we see a time when an entire city begins to riot over Paul and his influence. And it's really centered or or hinges on the local economy of that place. And so I'm titling this message, Never Give Up. Never Give Up. I did a little research this week. I've heard for a long time that the prime minister, Winston Churchill, who at a graduation stood up and all he said was, never give up, never give up, never give up. That's not all he said. The story says that's all he said, and he sat down. That was part of what he said, and a paragraph of what he said. And somehow, and you can go back, and Google will explain it all to you in some of the articles that it pulls up. But somehow it's been spun that that was all that he ever said. But the point is still made that that is a very important line that maybe could be all that one might need to get through. And I would dispute that. You need more than a tagline to get through challenges, but giving up versus not giving up. Sticking with it versus letting something go. Granted, there's times that we should let something go, but there are certainly times when we should never, ever give up. It's been several weeks ago now, but last time we looked in our series of Paul, 
Paul was on his third missionary journey, and he was in Ephesus. And we had talked about last time how the word Ephesus means desirable. And at that time, it was thought of as one of the greatest cities in all of Asia. It was a thriving port city on the only major east-west road system in the area. We talked about the population being about 150 to 250,000. The stadium there sat 15 to 25,000. So you multiply that by 10, which is oftentimes done in ancient cities. And that's what, what gives you the population. There were large mansions I'd mentioned on the hillsides that had heated floors. How many of you have heated floors? Some of you might. With hot water pipes running through the floors and walls. And some of those homes were well over 10,000 square feet, even 20,000 square feet. So we're talking about palatial estates, if you will, here in Ephesus. And in Acts chapter 19, we saw a back and forth between demonic forces and the power of God. And by the end of the story, in fact, if you have your Bibles, our our story comes from Acts chapter 19 again. But if you have your Bibles, by the end of the story, in verse 17, it says, fear fell on them all. And the Lord was magnified. Verse 18, the people were confessing. Verse 19, they were bringing their books of magic and burning them in the sight of all. And they gave evidence of true conversion. The things they once loved, they now abhorred. And it was a great loss to themselves. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars. They didn't sell or give away these books. No, they burned them so they wouldn't trip somebody else up. And we looked at this quotation last time from Acts of the Apostles, page 288. In accepting Christianity, some of the believers had not fully renounced their superstitions. To some extent, they still continued the practice of magic. And so last time I asked, which of you are still dabbling in something in the world that you need to renounce? What is it that you need to burn, either literally or symbolically? How are we still connected, even in some small way, with something worldly that God says, this is not best for you. You need to let it go. And I had a call and many people came forward, myself included. And here today, in the midst of the coronavirus, how much more the need for us to wake up, to see our true condition, to not pass blame, but to confess our sin, confess our worldliness, to confess our need of Jesus. What better time than right now? I thought of this quotation many times in the last several weeks. Last day events, page 28. God has a purpose in permitting these calamities to occur. They are one of his means of calling men and women to their senses. God's saying, wake up, wake up. Birth pains are a way of telling the mother, wake up, something big is about to happen. Well, is it going to happen this very instant? Well, it depends as the birth pains get closer and closer together, as they get larger and larger, if you will, more and more painful. All of these things are wake up calls. Let's go. Something's about to happen. We need to prepare. We need to get ready. Is everything in the car? Okay, let's go. God has a purpose in permitting these calamities to occur. And so now we're continuing on. Acts chapter 20. Well, this is where we ended last time. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. And that's where we concluded. Praise the Lord. In that secular place, in that secular environment, with elements, even within the church of worldliness and and dabbling with spiritual things, they bring their books. They have a huge bonfire. And the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. 
praise the Lord for revivals. But as we're about to see, that truly is not the end of the story, but just the beginning of today's story. Picking it up in verse 23, we read, we're in Acts chapter 19, verse 23, and about that time there arose a great commotion about the way that Paul was preaching about. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. Now, I showed you this picture last time, the temple of Diana. The Romans referred to it as Diana, the goddess of fertility. The Greeks called it this very same temple, the god of Artemis. It's the same temple. But this attracted people from all around. It was thought of as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, built of solid marble, lined with gold. So it wasn't just the structure itself, but it was the, the articulate, the particular way in which it was all put together and all the details and materials that they used. 425 feet long, 225 feet wide, 60 feet high, having 127 columns. I imagine when the sun shone on this temple at the right time, it was a sight to behold. And upon it, in all of the the detail, was inscribed symbolic characters which were believed to possess great power when they were really of the dark side. And so that's all these books of magic were trying to help them understand what all this means over here and what that means over there. But in May, they would have these yearly festivals. People from all over Asia and the world would descend upon Ephesus. And thousands of statues of the goddess were made and sold. And each year there was a huge celebration of music and dancing and drama. And the temple was a great, if not the greatest, source of the city's wealth. Everything revolved around this worship and paying homage to this deity. And so when Paul comes to town and he's preaching a message that is undercutting not just their religion... But really, we'll see here that the bigger issue for Demetrius is his profit margins. And so as we continue reading, verse 25, he called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. That's his lead phrase. This is a problem. He's cutting into our profits. People are not buying as much as they used to. And it's not just because Paul is known in Ephesus. He's beginning to be known around the world. And he's a problem. He's cutting into my pocketbook. How about yours? Yeah, 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 yeah. Something needs to be done. Verse 26. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling in disrepute, that's the real reason, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and in her magnificence destroyed whom all Asia and the world worship. Not only am I not getting the profits I used to, but let's couch this in the fact that we're really trying to protect the goddess of Diana. The history that we're founded upon our roots, our heritage, our lifestyle. But the big reason is our pocketbooks. And so like a virus, the blame for the economic downturn is spread. You know, I've thought also how 
challenging this coronavirus is in the isolation and various things, and you do have to be careful, and if you're not being careful, there is a certain amount of blame, I suppose, that could be assigned to you for not being careful. But ultimately, we know in Scripture and in prophecy, a time will come when something similar to this may happen, but the blame will be squarely situated on God's people. How would this all feel if every article I just shared from every news outlet was pointing to, but maybe I shouldn't go there. Maybe that's meddling. So we go on. Verse 28. Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aretaris, excuse me, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. In fact, Aretaris was, Paul served time with this individual and they traveled together. Why did they capture them and not Paul? Well, it's because they can't find Paul. They don't know where Paul is. If they could find Paul, they certainly would have grabbed him and brought him to the theater. He's the one that they want. But as a, a token, if you will, we're going to grab these others in individuals. And so we see this mob mentality only heightening as I'm sure there is a manhunt underway to find Paul. And verse 30, and when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. They held him back. I mean, Paul's not a coward. He doesn't want somebody else paying for his own things that he's responsible for. And so he wants to step forward, but his disciples are, by the grace of God, understanding the times. And they say, Paul, we're not going to let you go anywhere. I imagine somebody blocks the door. Somebody may even have to forcefully put Paul back and say, wait a second, this isn't happening. Well, why not? If you go out there, you're done. And so they do not allow, they do not permit him to go. Verse 31, then some of the officials of Asia who were his, Paul's friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Why? Because they knew as well. Don't go there, Paul. Because if you do, you're a dead man. They're not thinking rationally or logically. They haven't thought it all through. This is just an angry mob. They don't feel like they have what they should have and that it's your fault. Acts the Apostles 2.93 says this, should the apostles pale, careworn face. This isn't the first trial. Paul has been at this for a while now. His pale, careworn face been seen. It would arouse at once the worst passions of the mob and there would not be the least human possibility of saving his life. That would be it. That's that mob mentality. Says as well, angels of God had been sent to guard the apostle. Why? His time to die a martyr's death had not yet come. Does that bring anybody comfort this morning? It reminds me of another spirit of prophecy quote. I have a lot of scriptures this morning but I have a lot of spirit prophecy quotes as well, and I don't really make apologies for that. Throughout scripture, God sends his prophets to prepare his people for what's impending. We refer to it as present truth. And I firmly believe that Ellen White was a prophet of God, and I truly believe she had the gift, and I truly believe it is a gift of prophecy that God gave us to help us to persevere and hang on to him through this time and the times ahead. And so I don't make apologies, but look at this quote. This is an amazing quote to me. Ministry of Healing, page 489. He who is imbued with the spirit of Christ abides in Christ. 
Whatever comes to him comes from the Savior who surrounds him with his presence. And I've added some emphasis. I hope it's okay. But it says nothing can touch him except by the Lord's permission. How much? Nothing except by the Lord's permission. All sufferings and sorrow, all temptations and trials, all our sadness and griefs, all our persecutions and privations. In short, all things work together for our good. All experiences and circumstances are God's workmen, whereby good is brought to us. Now don't misunderstand. God doesn't cause it, but God allows it. Why? Because through it, good will be brought to us. Now that can be a hard thing to wrap your mind around sometimes. Really? God, you allowed this because it's for my better good? But it's the case. I mean, bottom line, you don't have to fear the coronavirus. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Yes, be cautious. Dr. Tryon was saying it's time to wear a mask. Wear a mask. It's not a lack of faith. You know, you, you do what you need to do. But at the end of the day, ultimately, if I abide in Christ, I don't have to fear my future. Nothing will come to me that God does not allow. And so I don't have to stress over the worries of life. Some of you might say, well, easy for you to say, Pastor. I know many, even now, are unemployed at this very moment. No job. And with your job went the benefits for you, for your whole family. How are we going to pay the mortgage? How are we going to pay the bills? Everything is stacking up. Elizabeth's source of income has dried up several weeks ago. And she only works one day a week. But uh, that adds up. Four days out of the month, that's a significant part of our income that's no longer there, gone. At least for the time being. And we don't know what the future holds. And just a week ago yesterday, Elizabeth's sister, Emily DeVazier, went to urgent care after increased pain in her chest and shortness of breath. And she's already immunocompromised for other reasons. So after CT scan, discovered a one centimeter mass attached to a lymph node thought to be cancer in her lung. And so this past week has been full of tests and second opinions and all these types of things. She's my age. Never smoked a day in her life. Three kids at home, small kids. But I read this quotation and I'm reminded that nothing can touch us unless God allows it. He doesn't cause it, but he allows it. Why? Because they are God's workmen to bring good to us. And for some of you, this is just blowing your mind. You say, I cannot understand. I cannot fathom how this horrific thing that happened could be allowed by God to bring good to me. But perhaps God is allowing these things to happen, this employment to happen, this this failure here and this failure there to happen to to show us and to bring us to the point where we see we need to depend on Jesus Christ alone. He's the only one with which we can place our trust and he's the ultimate healer. No matter what wrong has been done to you in your childhood or in your past, he can heal you and bring you past and beyond that and bring you out of that. But I promise you one thing, 
having been brought from where you were before the crisis to where you will be after the crisis by God's strength, you will be a different man, a different woman in Jesus Christ. You will not see life the same way. You won't read scripture the same way. Things that once were important will no longer be important in the same way, if at all. And all of these things in life, God doesn't cause them, but he allows them as a workman to work on me and my worldly heart and to pry my grubby fingers off the things of this world. The time is coming when every earthly support will be cut off. But all these challenges and heartaches are God's workmen to bring good to us. Do we believe that? Continuing in our story, Acts verse 32 shifts back to the crowd again. Some therefore cried one thing, some another, for the assembly was confused and most of them did not know why they had come together. Mob mentality. Verse 33, and they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. Why would the Jews put Alexander forward? Because the Jews and Paul were not on the same page. And the Jews were trying to say, hey, we're not like that Paul over there. We don't care about your princess, you know, this, this temple Diane and all this kind of stuff. You can still worship and do all that kind of thing. But once they found out he's a Jew, watch what they do. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. And when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Over and over for two hours, they don't allow him to speak. Some have proposed this because he's monotheistic, believes in one God. They're polytheistic, believes in many gods. You're a Jew, close enough. Don't let him talk. Verse 35, and when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, maybe there was a gap. They were getting tired, two hours of chanting. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is the, And it kind of heightens and then it starts to trail off after two hours. And when there's a little bit of a gap, the city clerk, I imagine, comes in. And who is this? Well, this is the chief administrative officer of the city. Oh, what's he going to say? Maybe he'll fix things for us. He'll set everything right. He quieted the crowd and he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple is the temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus. Now, what is that? Some speculate that's a meteorite, and when one would fall and they would see it, and, it, and you know it was one of the gods. Maybe it was Zeus, and so then if they could recover the meteorite, they would worship that, and they'd take that into the temple and back and forth. He's trying to say it's been proven that this is the god that we worship. By Zeus, by this meteorite, perhaps. Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of the temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open. And there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. Verse 39, but if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. He's basically appealing. Look at, we're not going to do things this way. In mayhem like this, the courts are open. We're going to do it in a lawful way. Verse 40, for we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar. There being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly into the chapter, into the story. So we're kind of left to think, okay, dodged a bullet on that one. And it's true 
And here is a great example, we could preach this sermon on religious liberty Sabbath, of how God raised up a great magistrate to vindicate his apostle, who holds the tumultuous mob in check, but in the midst of the crisis, what was the feeling of that intrepid apostle Paul? In other places in scripture, Paul writes things like this. These are taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and chapter 15 and 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But Paul says, I've been defamed, reviled, perplexed, persecuted, made as the filth of the world, troubled on every side, in jeopardy every hour, always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake. I imagine in Paul's humanness, This was getting a little exhausting for Paul. I imagine if we could give him one of our phrases that we use today, I imagine there were times he was over it. Are there ever times that you're over it? I'm just over it. I don't know if I can take this anymore. Enough's enough. I just don't care anymore. The devil will use that. Here's another quotation from Acts of the Apostles 297. Amidst the constant storm of opposition. Constant, 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 constant. Again, 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 again. Opposition, opposition, push, 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 blame, blame, blame. The clamor of enemies. Get them, get them, get them, get them. And the desertion of friends. Who do I have? The intrepid apostle almost lost heart. Sounds to me like Paul hit a low point. And maybe you can relate. Maybe you've been there. Maybe somebody watching says, that's where I am right now. I'm in a low point. I'm almost at the point of losing heart. The opposition seems relentless. It's just one thing right after the next, after the next, after the next. I mean, it seems like the devil never sleeps. By the time we get this crisis figured out, there's another crisis. And when that crisis is figured out, then there's this crisis. And then there's this health thing. And then there's that thing over there. And then there's this family member. Everything's a mess. I'm over it. It's at those times you need friends. But even in this, play, in this quotation, there's friends that Paul have are deserting him. Maybe you find yourself exhausted, overwhelmed, discouraged, feeling abandoned. And maybe like Paul, you have almost lost heart. Have mercy. Here in Ephesus, we find even that great pillar of the New Testament got discouraged. Even Paul at times felt overwhelmed. Even Paul became weary. Yes, Paul almost lost heart. But can I read you the rest of the quotation? But he looked back to Calvary. Almost lost heart, but he looked back to Calvary and with new ardor pressed on to spread the knowledge of the crucifixion. This is the turning point for Paul. Almost. He's right there. He's at the precipice. He's at the edge. But he looks back to Calvary and it changes. And he's brought back from the brink, if you will. He's enabled to continue. Why? Because he looks back to Calvary. I'm not going to quote all these, I'm not going to say all the verses. 
I'm starting in Matthew 27, but just a few from the final hours. Starting in Matthew 27, verse 24, when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising. There again, that mob, mob mentality. He took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. The blame game. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet, scarlet robe on him. And when they twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Then they spat on him and took a reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. And then they crucified him. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads, and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself if you are the son of God. Come down from that cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, he who saved others himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. And now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Friends, Paul almost lost heart. But I believe in a divinely inspired moment, he was reminded and looked back to Calvary. Friends, if you're discouraged, look back to Calvary. Read the closing scenes of the Gospels. Read it through again in Desire of Ages and see if it doesn't move you to tears. And bring you to the point of confessing, Jesus, what I endure is nothing. It's nothing compared to what you have done for me. I am completely unworthy of anything. You, O Lord, you are worthy of everything. I'm so small. You're so big. I'm so sinful. You're so sinless. But you did it for me. I mean, a moment ago, I was almost to the point of giving up, of losing heart. But looking unto Calvary, how could I do such a thing? Hebrews 12, verse 2. Familiar verse. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, discourages us, brings us down, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, 
Think about that. Jesus, too, was at the point of almost giving up, almost losing heart. Lord, if there's any other way, and what carried him through to the end, what does it say? Who, for the joy that was set before him, what's the joy? The joy is you, and it's me in heaven forever for eternity. And he saw your face, and he saw my face, and he says, it's worth it. I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to go forward. He endured the cross for the joy that was set before him, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so how do we do it? The same way, by looking unto Jesus. So are you discouraged this morning? Look to Jesus. Are you overwhelmed this morning? Look to Jesus. Are you feeling alone and abandoned this morning? Look to Jesus. Are you filled with uncertainty and anxiety? Look to Jesus. Are you filled with your sense of sinfulness? Look to Jesus. Are you you looking for hope? Look to Jesus. He alone can bring us through victorious. Do you believe that this morning? Then I challenge you to look to him. Not just the author, but the finisher of our faith, of our prayer this morning, that you will still our souls today. Take away all worry and anxiety and fear for the future, knowing that you are with us, that you are guiding us, you are providing for us, and ultimately you are orchestrating things in such a way that is ultimately for our best good. And Lord, when we look back to Calvary in our moments of discouragement, we're inspired to live for the Christ that lived for us. That it was his joy to see our face and persevere. May it be our same desire to see your face and persevere is our humble prayer in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.